Today in the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, we have an old acquaintance joining us to talk about his brand new book, Winning in Reverse. That is our man, Bill Lester, really looking forward to how folks respond to his autobiography, one where he used the help of the rather amazing longtime sports car racing writer and reporter and also author of many fine books, Jonathan Ingram. So Bill's new title, Winning in Reverse. Well, by chance, as a Bay Area guy and two Bay Area guys on the phone talking about his life and career in this short form interview series catching up with, well, got to see him as an amateur racer coming up in the San Francisco region of the Sports Car Club of America. It was great to catch up with Bill. I'd say I've known him properly for 10, 15 years or so when he was focused most heavily in the Grand Am. Got to know a bit about his upbringing, his past, a little bit of which I knew, but not enough. So I hope you'll enjoy that aspect. Talk about the road racing side for sure. The NASCAR side, probably where most folks would know Bill's name. By chance, that's where my greatest ignorance happens to fall. So brought some insights for us there, but also wanted to leave a lot within the book for you to get and enjoy someone who's done a lot of good work over the years, done a lot of really important things, really tried to bring racers of color along as well, promote any and all things positive about this sport. Really happy to spend some time here with Bill. As a quick aside, I have a lot of authors of racing books on the show and full transparency never costs anybody a penny. There's no advertising sales involved. It's just we don't have a lot of racing books coming out anymore. And so it's important for me when possible to connect with someone like a Bill who has an autobiography to share about an important life, not often lived in the spotlight, but those tend to be some of the better stories. So I hope you enjoy it. Winning in reverse, which he explains the reason for the title here as we open on the Marshall Pruitt podcast brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers and TorontoMotorsports.com. Bill Lester, you have written a book, and if I go by the title, I am assuming you are writing about a long and extensive career of driving race cars backwards. Am I close <laughs> at all? <laughs> no, not driving them backwards, but effectively having a somewhat backwards career. What do I mean by that? You know, most drivers come up in carts or quarter midgets, small cars, right? And work their way up to the big cars and call it a career. Well, mine was in the reverse because I started out in big cars, you know, essentially right out of college, right out of starting with Hewlett Packard in the high tech sector to uh, racing in SCCA. So I started out with the big cars and ironically, my last real competition was in karting, something I never <laughs> had the opportunity to do as a youngster. So believe it or not, in Portimao, Portugal, in 2012, I was representing Team USA in Masters Rotax competition. <laughs> yes, this is the best. Well, what I love, among the many things of, of seeing you uh, being able to document your life and your new book, Winning in Reverse, is, I guess, by coincidence in geography, I happen to see that Bill Lester guy on the local San Francisco Bay Area SCCA front. And I think um, this is not any kind of claim of meaning anything, but I seem to recall 
I think it was 88, 89 Sears point, something like a number 20. Uh, I'm trying to remember whether it was IMSA GTO or Trans Am, kind of a Camaro ish type something, but, um, I seem to recall seeing you at what might have been uh, one of your first pro races as well. So I don't know, man. I, I've been, uh, I guess, quietly following for quite some time and then got the chance to know you when I moved over to this uh, media side thing in the mid-2000s. But uh, I guess by luck, I got to see at least some of the early Bill Lester experience, and that's where I'd love to really start cracking into things here, Bill. So you, as you've mentioned, working Silicon Valley high-tech industry and such, not a strange thing for those in that environment to say competition, racetracks. We've got some good stuff here to work from in the Bay Area. Was this racing competition and cars thing always part of your life, or did that come to you uh, at what point? Yeah, you know, Marshall, people think that like when I showed up in NASCAR, I just like rolled out of bed <laughs> and decided to become a professional race car driver. Well, obviously that was not the case. The fact is your memory serves you well in that my first pro race was at Sears Point or what they call Sonoma. But to guys like you and me, it'll always be Sears Point, right? But at the IMSA GTO race at Sears Point in 1989, I wound up renting a SCCA GT1 spec Chevy Camaro and the guys that, um, you know, were crewing it for me basically swapped it over the GTO spec. And I was out there in the deep end for my first pro race, not in the GTU class, but like in the GTO class, what the heck was I thinking going from a amateur based Mazda RX three in GT three with about <laughs> 240 horsepower you know, four speed synchro mesh box, you know, with, uh, you know, using the clutch and all that stuff to a GTO IMSA car with, you know, straight cut gears, 650, 700 horsepower going from, you know, a 13 inch tire and wheel to like 16 inch, you know, full on Goodyear slicks, man. I, I don't know what I was thinking about, but I jumped in with both feet, had a great experience in the sense that, you know, through practice and qualifying, I was right there. I, you know, no, was I leading the pack? No. I mean, let's get realistic. The fact is I was up there in a private, you know, independent privateer car with the factory guys from Audi, from, um, I guess it was the Cougars. Yeah. The Lincoln Mercury Roush cars. Yeah, for sure. The the Cougars. And then, you know, the 300 ZXs of like Millen and Dale, you know, the Cougars were, Let's see, Wally Dollenbach and Pete Halsmer. Yep. The Audis were Hans Stuck and Hurley Haywood. <laughs> and then qualifying right behind them in the next GTO car was me, believe it or not, in front of all these other guys that had far more, you know, greater experience, better, maybe, you know, I would dare to say better equipment. But, you know, Sears Point was my backyard. I grew up on Sears Point in Laguna Seca two great tracks and uh, I was in my element did really well in the race until we had a suspension failure and I had to limp it into the pits. We wound up uh, putting on another tire and I limped around and finished the event. But uh, when I was running, it was stout. So I knew that this was something I wanted to do. Am I remembering correctly? The car was, was it white? Uh, Yeah, it, it was red and white. It was primarily white. 
It was primarily white with red numbers on it, the number 20, like you were saying. But a guy by the name of Larry Lest, who was really successful in SECA amateur competition, it was his car. I wound up renting it from him. And the person who opened the door for my being able to do that was Willie T. Willie T knew Larry, and he, you know, basically went up to bat, you know, for me and said, hey, Larry, you need to let my guy here, Bill Lester, uh, rent your car. And Larry, you know, he agreed for some unknown reason. And I was able to basically cobble enough budget together uh, through family and friends and through some paychecks at Hewlett Packard to make my debut pro race. That's so awesome. And I was curious because you can't grow up in the Bay Area without knowing that raging lunatic known as William Theodore Ribs, right? Such, uh, <laughs> again, he, he's like, granted, Joe Montana is from uh, Pennsylvania, but again, if we're talking just kind of Bay Area sports royalty, uh, we can rattle off, a, you know, a number of names, but Willie T is certainly one of them. It's really cool. How did you guys come to know each other? Because if we're talking eighty not this 89 point, I mean, he's, uh, definitely thriving with all American racers and whatnot and competing at the same event. Yeah. You know what? It was purely by coincidence. I would have never in a you know, million years imagined he and I would cross paths the way we did. I went through SECA driver school at Sears point in 1984 and just by happenstance or coincidence, whatever, I don't know. Willie happened to be there during the driver school weekend. And so, <laughs> believe it or not, after one of my on-track sessions, you know, my car's back over there in the paddock, and I'm, you know, with my tool, tool kit, basically, which is composed of like a tackle box. Like, I had basically no tools or equipment. I'm goofing around with one of my friends trying to make sure the brakes are right and all that stuff. And next thing you know, Willie T. Ribs walks up to me. And I'm like, who, what? Are you kidding me? You know, he's big as life, right? He's doing everything I want to do in, you know, sports car racing. He walks up to me and he goes, in his deep voice, I've been watching you. <laughs> and I'm like, huh? <laughs> he said, yeah, I'm Willie T. Ribs. And I said, man, I know who you are. <laughs> He's, I said, hey, I'm Bill Lester. He's like, I'm, it's great to meet you. He goes, you have what it takes to make it in this sport. I've been watching you and you have what it takes to make it. And I said, man, I said, uh, well, is there any way I can like stay in touch with you? And so he gave me his number and you know, lo and behold, we became great friends. And, you know, he really was my mentor. I was his protege. You know, he showed me everything to do and what not to do <laughs> as a professional race car driver because he and I are cut from, like, completely different cloths, right? You know, you know Willie. He's, like, as blue collar as you want to get. And I, on the other hand, I'm about as white collar, right? Here I am going to Berkeley, an engineering school with an electrical engineering computer science degree and work in the high-tech industry and, Willie basically grew up on a farm, right? So here it is, you know, basically two worlds coming together, but for a common goal, you know, I was watching him doing what he was doing in sports cars and I knew I wanted to be a professional race car driver. So I was basically learning at the feet of the master, right? I, I would go over to his house during lunch periods at HP, taking, you know, the company car wow, <laughs> and going over to his house up there in the, you know, San Jose Hills from where I was working in Cupertino, California and I would just basically spend my, as many lunch periods as I could just speaking with him, listening to him conduct business on the phone. You know, he'd always be talking to potential sponsors or his race team talking about how they can make their cars go faster. And I was just soaking it up, man. I was just like, wow, this is what it's like to be a pro, right? And so I would also go to some of his races, some of his events and what have you. And 
he was great. You know, he just basically took me under his arm and uh, just said, listen, this is what it takes. You have potential. I see the potential. You know, let's see what happens. And so that's how he and I came across each other. Well, and you and I and many others fortunately live to tell. Uh, yeah, I, again, uh, there are a few people I love more than Willie T. He's so insane, but the right kind of insane. So looking at your racing career, pretty interesting, Bill, because someone who made that pro racing debut in 89, you would hope, and I think most drivers would hope, cool, cracked the code, right? Obviously, it's not cheap, but hey, I'm in. Uh, hopefully, this will start building. I know that, uh, what, I think you did another, you know, you kept racing in between, but if we're talking the, hey, everyone, this is Bill Lester. He's on the pro scene doing things that, you know, folks coast to coast would know about. A little bit of a dip, uh, about 10 years worth or so, if I recall correctly. Tell us about the, the 1990s, which, again, uh, I know that you were not totally uh, absent from the racing world, but uh, you got that first start, and then, boy, you had to wait a little while. Yeah, man, it was like crickets. You know, you talk about the gas tank, uh, the needle was on E, because the 90s were effectively lean and mean. I spent the majority of the 90s being successful by everybody else's definition but my own. I define success as happiness, you know, looking forward to your day, doing what you want to do during it, and, you know, just looking forward to the next. And we're not, you know, nothing to disparage engineering in the high-tech sector, but it wasn't for me. Engineering for me was a means to an end. You know, I, like I said, was not born with any silver spoon in my mouth. I wasn't like, you know, the fortune that Willie had, which is where he was – able to, through his parents, you know, devices, send him to Europe to race. You know, my folks are like, well, if you want to go racing, I hope you find a career that allows you to race. You know, mm. <laughs> I'll expose you to some, you know, career opportunities that might get you there. And sure enough, that's what my father did. You know, my father um, was world renowned in theoretical chemistry. And so he used computers to predict the collisions between atoms and molecules at IBM research facility in San Jose. And so that's why we were in San Jose initially and then later moved to Oakland. But it's because of that um, that exposed me to computers and high tech. And I figured, you know what, with a four-year butt kicking at Cal Berkeley, which is at the time the second highest rated engineering school in the country to MIT, I would be able to write my ticket. And that's what I did. Engineering was not a passion of mine. Racing was my passion ever since my father took me to a race just shy of eight years old. He took me to Laguna Seca in 1980, no, 1968. And the Can-Am cars running around there were Chaparral's and McLaren. So, you know, Jim Hall was running around and wow. um, Bruce McLaren and Peter Revson, you know, Titans in Can-Am back in the day. And that's what set the hook. I was, you know, just mesmerized by these cars blowing by me at 160, 170 miles an hour. But, when I looked to my left and I looked to my right, I saw nobody that looked like me. And my father is like, you know, I don't know anything about this racing stuff, but, you know, he knew that his son loved cars and racing, so he took me. But he didn't know what he did there, which was set the hook to a long journey to become a professional. So, you know, listen, um, I was successful by everybody else's definition but my own. I was miserable punching the clock. You know, I was good. And I climbed the ladder from being a software development engineer to a research and development project manager, you know, at the, at the time, at the height, 
managing a couple dozen engineers, you know, so I had a responsibility. <laughs> I had a six figure income, Jeez. but I was hating life. Yeah. <laughs> I, I couldn't figure out how to get to the racetrack fast enough. So all of my waking hours, you know, off the clock hours were spent trying to get to a racetrack or trying to, you know, send in a sponsorship proposal or trying to get somebody to give me a test, you know? And so, you know, I got married in 1994 to my wonderful wife, Cheryl. And she told me one day, she said, listen, hon, you're not getting any younger and you're not getting any easier to live with. <laughs> so either <laughs> devote all your time and attention to making this dream a reality or say you gave it your best shot and it wasn't supposed to happen. So what happened was I did a number of SCCA World Challenge races in 1996. Yeah. And I was in a privately entered Mazda RX-7 against factory programs from Acura and um, Ford Mustang. I mean, Lou Gelati and P.D. Cunningham, guys like that were out there. Kermit Upton, you know, were out there in the BMW. Monsters. Running stout. Yeah. I mean, they were running stout, right? And my second race back after a five or six-year hiatus – I was on the podium at Watkins Glen. And so not only did it tell me that I still had what it took, but I loved it, man. And I was like, I got to keep doing this. So my wife told me in 98, you need to take a leave of absence and try to make your dreams a reality. And so we gave ourselves a three-year opportunity by which to make it happen. Or I would have to go back to the realities of, you know, being a, you know, a tech manager. And lo and behold, you know, the network, I utilized my network. I took advantage of opportunities I wouldn't have been able to if I was still punching the clock. Mm. And I got the great opportunity to be a part of the Dodge Diversity Program in the truck series. And lo and behold, I wound up racing in NASCAR. That, that's the part that is A, phenomenal, but B, also where I hold the greatest ignorance about your career, Bill, because I will admit that I have a bias that while I was fully aware of that uh, NASCAR career of yours. It wasn't really something that I followed because it wasn't sports car racing or open wheels. So that's something I'm going to ask a little bit more about in a moment. You mentioned, well, first of all, you never had a chance to be a bartender or something like that with your, your father's uh, mind and achievements. Uh, yeah. You're always destined for some sort of insane level of, uh, educational achievement and career. How does that reconcile though, knowing your lineage, your history, the amazing standards set, uh, say by your parents, you following that excellence and achieving it. But then I guess like we hear a lot of actors and comedians tell stories about, you know, mom and dad wanted me to be a lawyer or a surgeon. And I told them, no, I'm going to go tell jokes for a living. And they, you know, the parents never stopped crying from disappointment. How does that conversation take place? I know you're an adult, you, you know, you're, you're your own man by this point, but how does that conversation go down with your parents? Well, you know what, first and foremost, my parents wanted me to be happy. You know, they knew that engineering wasn't my source of happiness and, they were probably, especially my mother, less than thrilled with the idea of my wanting to become a professional race car driver. I can tell you the first time I went through SCCA driver school in 1984 and I brought my helmet home and on the back of your helmet in those days was basically a name, a blood type and a date of birth. <laughs> and when she saw my helmet and she saw, why is this 
O positive on there. And I said, well, that's my blood type. And she's like, well, why do they need to know your blood type? And I said, well, mom, in, in case something, you know, catastrophic happens, um, they need to know what sort of blood they might have to transfuse with me with. And she almost fainted. She was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> so I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with my parents, as well as other, you know, close relatives, aunts, uncles, whoever my parents reached out to to try to talk me out of this crazy ambition. You know, how many conversations I had, but it was basically like them talking to a wall. All I you had to do, to Bill, do. was say like, uh, no, no, no. See, they have a different rating system in racing. Like A plus, <laughs> man, that's nothing. O plus or now oh, that's that's the highest level, mom. It's just saying how good I am. You could have saved yourself so much grief, Bill. You know what? You are right, Marshall. I really just stuck it to myself. I don't know what I was thinking about. <laughs> Maybe trying to be too darn honest about the situation. But yeah, you're right. I caused myself all kinds of grief because uh, my mother looked at that in a whole different lens once she knew that was the case. But uh, no, it was... Definitely going against the beaten path. Um, both my parents um, were very accomplished. You know, my mother, college graduate, you know, uh, English teacher. My father, like I said, PhD in theoretical chemistry. You know, I was all set up for, you know, academic and professional success. But, I mean, here I am wanting to run around and drive cars at breakneck speed for a living. And they just couldn't understand it. But, uh, you know, I knew that I loved it. I found out I was good at it. And I wasn't taking no for an answer. Stay with one thing you mentioned, uh, one of your father's recognitions that, hey, this racing thing, I don't know anything about it. And you seem to like it being here at this Can-Am event. But, boy, uh, we sure are standing out among the crowd. There's lots to read in your book, so we're not trying to give away the book for free in the podcast. But... You came up in racing at a time like Willie T and like many others where a black man was certainly not welcome in every paddock, in every situation. Therefore, to continue put in to push forward, there had to be a serious degree of inner resolve. There had to be many things different than today. And I'm not saying, nor would either of us say everything is perfect today, but it was a very different time, though, than today, back when you got your start and started coming into pro racing. You share some of those experiences with us, Bill? Because I, I can't pretend to know what your life has been, but I do know that uh, folks uh, who come from outside, folks that look like me, don't always get the warmest welcome. Yeah, you know, even starting out in SCCA in Northern California, which you would think is really progressive. Liberal as can be. What's that? Liberal as can be. Yeah, wink, exactly. Nudge, Liberal nudge. as can be. You know, accommodating. Yeah, we're all, you know, in it together, et cetera, and so on. Nah. When I first showed up, I mean, I'm telling you, there were some stares, <laughs> some looks of disapproval. And, you know, even like folks, it's like, you guys don't race. You know, what are you doing out here? You know, and I was like, really? You know, and I just shook it off. I, I, you know, I didn't really care about that because I was out there about to go racing. And that was all that mattered to me. You know, of course, I was aware of my uniqueness and all that sort of thing. But, you know, I just look at that as other people's, you know, naivete or ignorance or whatever. You know, it's like, you're not going to derail me. I'm going to do this. And, that was nothing by comparison to what I experienced, obviously, when I moved to the Southeast 
and learned about the NASCAR culture. And it was a baptism by fire because when I first watched NASCAR as a kid on ABC's Wide World of Sports, I would see like the Daytona 500 or the Southern 500 or the Talladega 500, right? They're like three big races in NASCAR. And I would see these images of Confederate flags, you know, proudly blowing in the breeze. And every time I heard, you know, one of the drivers after he had an accident or something like that, getting out of the, the car and saying, Matars, you know, I had to call Matars or something. You know, I'm like, what? I couldn't even understand what they were saying. So, you know, my thoughts of going to NASCAR when I was very young were like, that's the furthest thing for what I was going to think about in terms of racing. Because, you know, as we talk about, Marshall, as, you know, aficionados of sports car racing, we think of racing as turning right and turning left, upshifting, downshifting, accelerating, braking, not dropping it in fourth gear and staying, turning left, trying to stay off of, at the time, a concrete wall, now a safer barrier. But I'll tell you, you know, I watched the growth of the sport in NASCAR continue to proliferate, and I watched the problems in sports car and open-wheel racing. And when, you know, you talk about a professional race car driver, you want to be where the action is. You want to be on the grandest stage, the biggest platform you can be on. And I saw that becoming NASCAR racing in the 90s. One of the things that really was a bellwether for me was when I saw John Andretti, who was racing for Jim Hall's Pennzoil-sponsored IndyCar team, give that up to go race in NASCAR. I mean, I don't know what you thought, but like a lot of guys thought, what the heck is he? Is he crazy? Why would he give up an IndyCar ride to go NASCAR racing? But believe it or not, he kind of set the, you know, the bar. He, He kind of led the procession of a lot of drivers coming from sports cars and IndyCar going to NASCAR. And so when I got to NASCAR by the 2000s, I was right there in the thick of things. Another thing I'd love to delve into, Bill, is as I recall seeing and I recall hearing the stories as well, the France family, obviously the the founders of NASCAR, founders of the Grand Am Road Racing Association as well, the France family saw particular value in you and not just because of your ethnicity but because of your skill because of everything that you brought there was a definite uh understanding at least that i had that they didn't feel right if you weren't part of their racing story and wanted you there and competing whether it was Daytona prototypes or whatever it might have been, you know, on, on the NASCAR side, on the Grand Am side. You speak to that a little bit because it's that's I don't know if it's a portion of your story that as many folks uh, know about as they should when you have the people who make the racing happen say you're important to us. That's got to be something that you you clutch and hold on to. Yeah, you know, absolutely. If it wasn't for the support of the France family, and when I mean by France family, I'm talking specifically Jim France. Jim France, I believe, thought very highly of me. And I don't know why. I never sat down and asked him. But in this situation, actions speak louder than words. And as you alluded to, he gave me enough support, you know, helping me enough along the way to keep me in the game. Now, 
was my program like on the same level as a number of the others? And, you know, could it have been, you know, more effectively supported? Of course. But, you know, I'm glad that they thought enough of me to have me around. They could have easily turned their back. And then, you know, whatever doors of corporate America that I was trying to get through would have probably slammed shut. So they at least, you know, just put a good enough word in and moved enough dominoes, I guess, behind the scenes so that I got, you know, some good opportunities to continue to compete. It was frustrating because I never really had quite what was necessary to race at the front every week. I had good equipment, but I didn't have great equipment by and large. And the time that I did have great equipment, I didn't have enough budget. It was kind of like either one or the other. But, you know, long and short of it is, is that I really um, treasured my relationship with Jim France. As quiet as he is and behind the scenes, I mean, he is the most unassuming person you'll ever meet. I mean, you'll be right next to him and you're like, you know, who is this guy? Not realizing you're standing right next to a billionaire, Mm. you know? I mean, he is that, you know, just unobtrusive, just, you know, regular, quiet, down to earth, unassuming, just regular guy. I mean, he, during the Grand Am races, he would be off the beaten path somewhere in his, like, I don't know, century old, new old coach. I mean, you'd look at this bus and you're like, how does that thing get from one race to the next? (laughs) I mean, you look at all the drivers and what they're running around in, right? And you look at what Jim France is running around in and you're like, my God. You're looking for the Woodstock stickers and whatnot (laughs) on the side. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. But let me tell you, you know, I was so proud to be able to like go into his offices, not the ones, you know, that right off of, uh, you know, the, the speedway at Daytona, but near, you know, the water, you know, and, go into his private offices and have conversations with him. And, you know, just ones that weren't just specifically about racing, but just, you know, conversations. So I got an opportunity to to look inside, you know, how does this guy tick and what is, how does he click and what's interesting to him? And, you know, these are just great conversations and things that I really didn't go into in the memoir, but I did suffice it to say, indicate that, you know, I was a huge, you know, beneficiary of his largesse. And just the fact that I guess he thought I was good for the sport. And for whatever reason he thought so, I'm appreciative of. He's never thought I was good for the sport. So I'm, I mean, there's some jealousy in that question, Bill. I got to acknowledge that. Um, <laughs> kidding aside, let's talk a little bit about your NASCAR career. And I know that, again, this is something that I would love for folks to read uh, in an in-depth capacity in your new book, Winning in Reverse. Tell me about this move because obviously your every single ounce of your experience as you mentioned involves going left right braking shifting doing multiple disciplines at once not necessarily going around in circles great opportunity but one that was definitely not within your uh, your comfort zone experience wise i i'm comfortable saying man it took some balls to say, all right, let's go do it. I'll figure it out uh, while it happens. Yeah. I mean, how do you go from jumping from, you know, a light, sexy sports car, you know, with 2,600, maybe 2,800 pounds and a lot of tire, a lot of brake, some downforce to running around in a 3,500 pound family car with no tire, no brake and 800, 900 horsepower, right? <laughs> I mean, it's monumental leap. 
And then being on a circuit that you have, you know, no business being on because you have no familiarity with it. I mean, when here's my situation. I got the good fortune of meeting the former president and CEO of McDonald's a long time ago named Ed Renzi. Ed Renzi had a Bush series team at the time, and he was supporting a um, program called the Urban Youth Racing School out of Philadelphia. And he was supporting the Urban Youth Racing School, and I got to meet him as a result of my being a part of that organization. And he pulled me aside one day, and he said, hey, Bill, you know, I understand you run around in these little sexy sports cars, whatever, but have you ever driven a heavy car? And I looked at Ed and said, well, what's a heavy car? He said, a stock car. And I said, no. And he said, hmm, you know, let me think about that for a minute, and I'll get back to you. And in short order, he called me up and he said, Bill, I've been thinking about this. I want to test you in a heavy car. And I said, okay, Ed, uh, sure. Well, why not? You know, I mean, I didn't know what I was getting into, quite frankly. But lo and behold, we show up at this quarter mile high bank short track in Anderson, Indiana. And when I say quarter mile high bank short track, this joker had a figure eight infield. So this is the type of place where you do demolition derby. <laughs> you don't race cars in this little place. I mean, when I saw it, my mouth dropped. I'm like, how can you put like 36 race cars on a facility like this? There's not enough room, you know, but sure enough, this is the, you know, the background. This is the foundation of stock car racing, right? The little bull rings. And so I thought, because he didn't tell me otherwise, I got the impression he was going to put me in a private test just to see if, you know, I could <laughs> keep the car off the wall. No. When we pulled into the track, it was a full-on ARCA race weekend with, like, the heavy hitters of the sport at the time. You know, the late 90s. This was Frank Kimmel, Ken Schrader, you know, guys like that, champions wow. in ARCA. So what Ed does is he backs out his primary car, which is all painted up nice and neat for his primary driver. And then behind that, he pulls out a primer gray backup car out of, the, out of the hauler. And he goes, Bill, I want you to run this car. And I'm like, run it where? <laughs> He's like, right here. You're going to go out there and show me what you got. And lo and behold, the crew guys pulled out with their uh, gray, you know, gunmetal gray primer car. They pulled out some red duct tape and put down two strips on the side of the door for the number 11. And with my duct tape numbers, I went out there in the arc of practice, my first time ever on an oval. Can you believe that? Brutal. I was like, it was brutal. And so the crew chief was coming over the radio talking about, you know, how's the car? And I'm like, you know, maybe it's a little tight going in here. It's, you know, a little, well, actually I didn't say probably tight. I said it's understeering because I was still using road racing lingo, sure. right? I wasn't talking about loose and tight or pushing loose. I was talking about understeer and oversteer, right? So I said, well, it's understeering into the corner. It's oversteering off the corner, whatever the case is. And he pulled me in. He's, you know, they showed me the time after the session. Had my time in practice been that that I ran in qualifying, I would have qualified in the top 10 in that ARCA race. And they were so impressed with the feedback that I gave them. Ed said, Bill, I'm impressed. You know, stick with me. Let's see what happens. And, you know, a little bit later, he calls me up and he goes, I want you to run in the uh, Bush Series race for me at Watkins Glen. So in 1999, I made my debut as the first black driver to race in the, the NASCAR Bush Series at the Glen because Ed Renzi talked Bobby Hillen out of running his car there because Hillen was struggling for sponsorship and everything. 
and didn't want to run in a road course anyway, like most of the roundy round guys there. They just like, why are we turning right? You know? And so uh, Ed said, listen, Bobby, I'll uh, cover you for a couple of races. If you put my guy, Bill Lester in this car, and that's how I made my debut in NASCAR. Wow. Well, there's a ton more to read there. I figure let's close on this just because it's a little bit timely and topical. So your last full-time pro racing gig that I recall at least was with the, uh, the auto house motorsports team, uh, with a, a Camaro running in uh, grand Am's GT class. There's some punk kid. I yep. seem to recall who was really, it wasn't his first outing, but he, this was really his first kind of serious season long. We're not just doing baby steps, but real, Try and get you ready maybe for a career, see if it works out. Bill, can you tell us whatever happened to this young, I guess I'd call him protege, learning from you, some kid named yeah. Jordan Taylor? Whatever happened yeah, to him? This little lackey. I mean, you know, he wasn't worth, you know, he wasn't worth salt. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing could be further from the truth. Let me tell you about Jordan Taylor. Man, you talk about recognizing, you know, just pure racing talent. Jordan Taylor had it in abundance. I mean, it was amazing. We came together, like you said, in 2011 to run for Bob Curlin and the Auto House, uh, you know, Chevy Camaro GTR team. We came out of nowhere. You know, um, the Stevenson Motorsports car, Camaro, was the favorite, you know, Chevy product out there against Lee Keen and Andrew Davis and the Porsche, Brumos Porsche, and a whole lot of other stout competition. We had not, you know, we didn't know who each other were. You know, and at least I didn't know who he was. He might have heard of me. I don't know. Probably not. But uh, we first got together at a test at um, PBIR, Palm Beach International, in, you know, middle Florida. And, you know, here I am thinking, you know, after ha hopping out of prototypes and stuff like that, having done halfway decent, I'm going to teach this kid a thing or two. <laughs> Jordan handed me my lunch. I was like, what? Who is this guy? <laughs> you know, he was effortlessly fast, you know, and he wasn't used to this car all that much. He had been racing a little Mazda RX-8 in the GT class and then jumped into this car. But I mean, the feel that this guy, the natural ability that this guy had, I was astounded. And so while, you know, I took him under my wing, so to speak, in terms of, you know, this is what it takes to be a professional race car driver and, you know, showing him stuff about, you know, how I conducted myself, whatever. Hey, when it came down to looking at the, um, you know, the simulation data and telemetry, I was looking off of his sheet more than he was looking off of mine. Trust me. Because wow. the guy had limitless, limitless ability. But he was unbelievably just young. I mean, just the things he talked about, the things that made him laugh. We would take trips when we were both lived. Well, I was living in Orlando, and he was living just outside of Orlando. And we would drive down to the, to the shop in Delray Beach. And we would take these long road trips in Florida. And we would just talk about things. And the things he talked about... <laughs> You know, just, I'm like, uh, what Pokemon or, you know, whatever the case is, you know, <laughs> stuff my kids would talk about. Right. <laughs> and he looked at me like, probably like grandpa. <laughs> so you talk about the odd couple, Jordan and I were the odd couple, but we made a dynamite pair behind the wheel. We won at VIR, um, which is the first time, you know, a black driver won in a Grand Am race. And for me, it was really symbolic because it was the backyard of Wendell Scott because Danville was right around the corner. Yeah. And, you know, we're second in the championship at, to, up until, you know, well, actually we're leading it and then wound up second at the very last race at mid-Ohio when I 
basically put a wheel wrong. But uh, we had a fantastic, phenomenal season, um, almost made complete history by winning the championship, but came two points shy of it. But, you know, I knew right then that Jordan was on to bigger and better things. And lo and behold, you see everything he's done in a prototype, everything he's done now as a factory Corvette driver. Um, the kid, I knew it. And I said it way back in 2011. He was somebody to watch. Bill, so happy to see your life transformed into words in a uh, book that folks will be able to get. Why don't we uh, wrap by having you tell folks where, when, how they can not only get winning in reverse, but also uh, if there are other places on the good old interwebs where they might find you or learn more about you. Yeah, absolutely. I'd like to uh, call out my website, BillLester.com. You can order it there. You can also go to Amazon. You can go to Simon & Schuster. Um, Just about anywhere books are sold, it is available now on pre-order and officially releases on February 2nd. So looking forward to that right around the corner. But, uh, yeah, I think that anybody, it's not a racing story. What my book is, to be clear, is a motivational memoir with a racing backdrop. In other words, what I do is I identify eight keys to my success, to my being able to live my dream. One of them you mentioned was being out of your comfort zone. Another, I talked about networking. Another one, gratitude. I mean, there are eight keys to allow me to live my dream and be successful. Anybody in whatever walk of life that you're in can take these keys, run with them, and hopefully better your life. That's a perfect ending to an interview there, Bill. So look at that. Jesus, you're not too bad at this. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Not my first rodeo. And that was our man, Bill Lester. Do appreciate his time here. And guess what? The book just became available today, February 2nd. So if you're catching this today, or in the days that follow, all the ways he mentioned that it can be taken home, well, I'd hope you would consider that because I need to buy it myself, which I'm going to do right as soon as I'm done recording here. So, all right, I am Marshall Pruitt. This is our podcast brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, and TorontoMotorsports.com. Thank you for listening.